Today on Ag News Daily. I learned so much from that uh, first prototype, but uh, what I really learned is what not to do. Listeners, last day of January, January 31st, Tuesday edition of the Ag News Daily Podcast. Tanner and Delaney here. Getting ready to head out to the Iowa Ag Expo. At least I am, Delaney. Are you going to be able to sneak down there? I wish I was going to be able to, but I'm on the road again later this week, heading to Beloit, Kansas. So I need to button up a few things before I hit the road later this week. Beloit, Kansas. <laughs> I was listening to uh, one of my podcasts this morning that was talking about the Kansas farmers during the Great Depression and uh, obviously the Dust Bowl mm-hmm. that ensued during that time period. So, uh, Hopefully they have taken much better care of their soil and you don't have to worry about any dust issues. Well, no, I would hope that they've been getting a little snow too, because I know they certainly could use the moisture tanner. Yeah, I maybe it'll warm back up for you. But here again, we're seeing wind chills this morning that were as low as minus 20 degrees, especially here in Iowa and Nebraska, the northern half of Iowa could see cold going into this evening with wind chills hitting negative 30 or lower. The cold wind chills could cause frostbite if exposed to skin for as little as 30 minutes. So make sure you're taking care of yourself when you're out checking livestock. The entire state of Wisconsin is facing wind chill advisories that remain into effect. They have values dropping to 25, 20 to 20, excuse me, 20 to 35 degrees below zero. So it seems like there is quite a region from Eastern Colorado all the way to the Great Lakes that is seeing significant cold, Delaney. Yes, it certainly is. Santa was outside this morning and I don't want to be outside anymore. So wouldn't advise going outside if you can avoid it. Yes, exactly. Well, the first real headline that I've got today is we might be seeing the shipping crisis averted on the Mississippi River. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has been dredging the river 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they try to continue to combat the low water levels as the river drought hit a lot of headlines earlier this year. Now we hopefully will not see any shipping backups in the years to come. Officials with the Soy Transportation Coalition say that they've been doing a great job dredging. They're encouraged by the improvement of the snowpack in areas such as Montana and the precipitation that the upper Midwest has seen fall this winter. They're optimistic that the Missouri River or Mississippi River levels will continue to build back up and its tributaries are already rebounding and will be prepared for the spring. When you look at the river gauges though, Delaney, there's various points of inland water systems like Memphis and St. Louis, where they're already seeing water levels that are equal to or at least comparable to this time last year. So it's good to see that we're getting some levels back up to normal so we can get barge traffic back to normal for next year and uh, continue to push past what was in the past and start on a good pace for the 2023 growing season. Yeah, and the 2023 growing season is right around the corner, Tanner, but I have some other water-related news. 25 governors have asked President Biden for a delay on the implementation of WOTUS. The 25 governors range from a variety of different states, Tanner, but they said the administration needs to delay the implementation of the rule until after we see a key 
Clean Water Act ruling in the Sackett case, which should be issued sometime this spring. The EPA and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers released the final rule on December 30th, which sparked quite a few lawsuits pending currently in the U.S. District Court in the Southern District of Texas. The final rule that we've seen by and large exempts most farming practices from the Clean Water Act jurisdiction, but implements the so-called what we call significant nexus and relatively permanent standards when deciding which waters are able to be governed by WOTUS. So ag groups and many other industry groups have historically opposed this significant nexus standard for the fear that it's going to be used to claim jurisdiction over dry land features. But the 25 governors said in the letter to President Biden that the timing of the final rule couldn't have been worse and are asking him to delay it. The Supreme Court is expected to issue a ruling on Sackett versus EPA sometime in June. And the current WOTUS rule is expected to take effect sometimes around sometime around March 1st. So the 25 governors are asking for at least a delay until after that June ruling, Tanner. Yeah, and it looks like there are 60 agricultural groups that are also pushing Congress and the House, both House and Senate budget committees to make sure that crop insurance and budget pressures don't ax the program. They're calling the crop insurance program the linchpin of the farm safety net. The coalition of 60 farmer and ag business groups are standing behind their letters urging congressional budget leaders to protect crop insurance from harmful cuts. They are looking here at uh, domestic programs and potentially defense spending in return for raising the debt limit. Congress is negotiating over that federal debt limit, as we've reported here the last couple of weeks, and are proposing budget cuts. They, 60 groups of ag individuals and leaders are pushing to protect crop insurance as part of that as the ag committee starts to look at programs for the next five-year farm bill they're focusing on risk management and crop insurance is being one of those to expand past farm bills shifting less costs away from the direct commodity programs in order to maintain its process obviously congress is continuing to look at the usda to broaden its crop insurance for larger variety of fruits and vegetables and that does potentially bring an increase in costs these 60 agricultural groups wrote to the leaders of these committees stating that the last several years have brought on an onslaught of uncertainty for america's farmers and ranchers from weather to extreme disruptions in international markets COVID-19 is unprecedented and has produced unique challenges. These letters state during this tumultuous time, few certainties that farmers could rely on, such as the protection from crop insurance, was great to protect their hard-earned dollars. So as they continue to look at ways to cut government spending, ag groups are lobbying to make sure that crop insurance is not one of those cuts. Well, Tanner, as we are seeing an interesting problem come to light here in Ukraine uh, slash Central Europe. So as we know, Ukraine has been continuously trying to get more grain exports out of the country. Well, six Central European countries have asked the European Union to take steps to mitigate these exports because now they're saying they were able to basically uh, export more grain during this period. And now that Ukraine is starting to ramp back up, it's hurting their country's farmers and prices, Tanner, which is a very odd 
odd problem to have, but the six countries uh, include Bulgaria, Slovakia, Romania, Hungary, Poland, and the Czech Republic. And they are the ones that have made this joint request at the EU Agriculture and Fisheries Council meeting in Brussels and asked for immediate measures to be taken for the EU to basically say, hey, Ukraine, you are exporting too much grain now and hurting these other countries. It's a very strange dynamic. I don't quite know what to make of all of it. (laughs) That is, that is quite a strange dynamic. I did do a little bit more homework on your question yesterday about the article relating the potential looming recession to what happened in the seventies. And it was such a combination of things. You know, I think uh, it was pretty accurately depicted in my comments last week. There was a period of stagflation. There was also a period of the fed raising their rates to battle inflation prior to the stagflationary period. But one of the other things that popped into this was the embargo on oil. So if you talk, just like you described there for one country may be exporting too much grain. Uh, if we end up with any more trade issues or embargoes amongst some countries that we rely on, uh, it could compound things. But ultimately, uh, the Federal Reserve had pumped a lot of ad hoc programs together, which kind of mimics what we saw with uh, COVID-19 resource packages that both hit through PPP loans and direct payments to artificially stimulate the economy prior to the recession, which made it hit harder since there was a false hope that the government would continue to provide support. So uh, I had done a little bit more digging there. Of course, some of our listeners probably also have better perspective on the 70s as far as that goes. But wanted to give that a little bit of a headline there for our listeners, Delaney. And then the last piece I have is just wanted to summarize the award recipients of the Top Producer Summit, which was hand, uh, held in Nashville last year. Top Producer of the Year was Silent Shade Planting Company out of Mississippi. That was the Jack family, including Jeremy and Elizabeth Jack, as well as Stacy and Willard Kroger. They are the 2023 winners of that award. The top producer of the year finalist was Ingle Family Farms out of Hanover, Virginia. Kevin Ingle was the first generation farmer that started in 1991 and his operation now covers many counties in two different states. Uh, Modak Dairy in Goodwin, South Dakota, was a top producer of the year finalist. They are a four-generation farm right now, taking pride in high-quality milk produced in a sustainable manner. And then, obviously, we talked to Trey Wasserberger during our podcast interviews last week. The owner of TD Angus at Russell Ranch was another one of those finalists. Last award that I will hit on today was Executive Women in Agriculture Trailblazer Award. That was awarded to Marsha Ruff, the owner of Ruff Farms in Circleville, Ohio. She won the 2023 award sponsored by Trust in Food for her shining example of leading in women of the industry. Her diversified crop and livestock farm delights many people in her area as well as kids in the classroom. So it's neat to see those awards. We want to congratulate all of them, Delaney, but that's what I have for today. Great. Well, I think the only thing I have left here, Tanner, aside from, well, actually, no, I think I just have Marcus left. So why don't we hop right into it here? Go right in. All right. Well, here at the midday, we are still seeing a little bit of positive momentum in the soybean markets. 
Well, so let's start there. March soybeans up five cents here at the midday at 1540. New crop soybeans actually down just a penny and a half here at the midday at 1366. Corn is also trending to the upside as the March contract is up about a penny at 685. New crop corn here at the midday is two pennies higher at 591 and three quarters. Hard red March winter wheat is up five and three quarters cents at 879 and a half. And as we tick over to the livestock markets, we're seeing some mixed trade here today. April live cattle down 30 cents at 163.05. March feeders up $1.32 at 185.25. And April lean hogs here at the midday down about 82 cents at 85.70. Tanner, without further ado, let's kick it over to our conversation today with Larry Kearns from Tracker Sled. segment today brings an exciting self-proclaimed outsider of the agricultural community to us to talk about their company. We've got Larry Kearns here, who is the founder of Tracker Sled, and I'm excited to learn some more. Welcome to the podcast, Larry. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Why don't you start off by giving a little bit of your background before we jump into what the product is? Sure. Uh, I have been an architect in Chicago for the last 38 years. And uh, through my work in buildings, construction, uh, I've come across a lot of different technologies. And one of the ones that really struck my interest is in all the renewable technologies, um, in most particular, the solar technologies that is infinitely scalable. And uh, so that led me um, through a competition uh, to start considering how solar could be used on farms, on ag land, all, all sorts of working land uh, to make farming much more profitable. So that's the sort of short uh, synopsis of how an architect gets involved in, in, in a farming, <laughs> in a farming operation. So. And I love that you were sharing with us a little bit here before we started recording the interview here that you are self-proclaimed farmer or self-proclaimed, I suppose, about what you outsider, but you learned a lot of what we talk about in agriculture through YouTube videos and just through maybe osmosis a little bit as well, yeah. which I love. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I have to say I was probably as ignorant as your average American consumer is about what farming at scale is, what it, how it, how it, how it goes down in the United States, particularly in the Midwest and Corn Belt where I'm immersed in it. I'm a native Floridian. Uh, so I grew up, you know, south of this, but I've been immersed in, you know, driving through central Illinois, Iowa, uh, Indiana f uh, for, for, for decades. And uh, I have to say it's breathtaking, you know, in, in July and August, right. For somebody not used to it, but uh, I had no idea the, the process and uh, that you're, your average commodity scale farmer goes through. So I have spent the last four years, <laughs> again, I sort of joke that my ag degree is from YouTube because of the uh, amount that I've learned by virtue of just following different farmers, their practices, understanding conventional practices, regenerative practices across the board. So, and I continue to uh, try to immerse myself as much as I can to learn about the pain points of farmers. 
Well, yeah. So let's dive into that a little bit more. So you found yourself thinking that solar farming is complex and it doesn't work well for large scale farmers or for farmers to be able to capture more profit. So how did you go about taking that problem and then creating tracker sled? What is tracker sled? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the actual impetus was uh, I responded to an inocentive uh, competition or a challenge, as they called it. And this was a company that uh, put out uh, crowdsource challenges, right? They, 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 they have a challenge for the crowd and the crowd responds. And I was doing and winning, uh, you know, I was entering a lot of them and winning a lot of, uh, of those competitions, uh, which uh, provided great money for my family to, to go on great vacations. And it's actually a uh, challenge posed by Enel, which is the largest European uh, energy company. It's an Italian company. And they, they put out a challenge that said, how can you ameliorate the environmental damage caused by solar farming in agricultural areas? And they were trying to expand outside uh, Minneapolis and were having a lot of public relations problems. And you can see that in the news too, right? Taking prime farmland out of production, oftentimes doing it, uh, putting a fence around it, uh, saying uh, with the keep out signs, right? So uh, my take on that was that you would actually put uh, the solar farming resource in the hands of a farmer, have it be uh, impermanent, so to speak, uh, agnostic to the land that it was on and so on. And, uh, you know, I lost that competition. but uh, I remained really intrigued by the prospects that um, solar farming, because the sun falls on on the cropland, there's no reason why uh, it only needs to be in the hands of solar developers that export the energy along with uh, the capital, right? Along with the money. And uh, there's gotta be a way to have, uh, to simplify the solar farming right? So farmers can take advantage, provide their own energy, ultimately their own, uh, use that energy to produce their own fuel and fertilizer to become energy independent and vastly more profitable. So that, that, that sort of, and I just couldn't give up on that idea. Um, and so I entered, uh, other competitions, uh, including Indigo Ag's Terraton Challenge, and then the uh, solar prize that's sponsored by uh, the Department of Energy, and I was successful in that uh, in that project, uh, in that competition, and became a finalist and was able to be a build uh, three different scaled options and one full scale option in uh, on a farm in southwestern Michigan. So it's nice to hear. One of my my leading question was going to be if you've gotten this to a full scale project yet and it sounds like you have yeah our listeners would be interested how how does that look how's that process yeah you you know i have to say though as uh as is typical when you're trying to uh, create something from scratch or a new idea i learned so much from that uh first prototype but what i really learned is what not to do and actually the the origin of the name of tracker sled is that this was a movable tracker meaning that it pivots on a single axis following the sun as it crosses the sky during the day and it was uh you know these these two trackers that were on um uh, if you want to think of them as skis, like big skis, these water tanks that were, you know, heavy by virtue of being ballasted with water. 
And uh, I encountered, uh, and I built this with the help of two uh, general contractors in the Chicago area that were very generous with their time and so on. Uh, but I have to say, when I got that out to the farmland and realized how difficult it was to ballast it with water because we weren't near a water source and ignorantly, I'm just, you know, just saying, well, farms have access to water, but clearly that wasn't true. And then when I was uh, commissioning the movable tracker, uh, I just said, look, uh, I am an architect with a lot of experience and there are so many moving parts here that it was impractical uh, to ask a farmer that has so much equipment to maintain uh, to have just yet another piece of moving equipment to maintain on their on their farm. So uh, I am very grateful to the DOE for giving me that opportunity. Um, but really, um, I then entered another DOE competition. These are called uh, SBIR grants, and they're for small business innovation grants. Um, and so I was I succeeded in that grant, but completely redesigned this to be no moving parts completely self-ballasting, meaning by just by the weight of the structure, uh, it withstands the wind and so on. And also hoisting it up uh, well into the air to keep uh, the, the solar panels. So the, the sort of backside production uh, would melt snow and so on. So I made many different modifications to the design uh, that I probably would not have done uh, without that prior experience. So um, I can sort of explain if you if you'd like what it what it looks like um, to paint a picture. Yeah. For, for, for your listeners. So yeah. um, the idea is just like anything that's modular, right? You make one you design one and build many. And this is a case of that, right? Where uh, each one of these, what I would call, I call them sun farmer modules, but you can think of them as solar farming modules. Like some people might think of that as a panel, but at, at, at farm scale, uh, these sun farmer modules look like a 50 foot long trestle bridge uh, with, a, with roofs of bifacial solar panels. Uh, that are uh, placed over a reflector, almost a reflector as a roadway. And um, this this so-called trestle bridge, um, when I say bifacial solar panels, it means that the, the, the solar panel facing the sky not only generates uh, energy on its top side, but also generates energy on its underside. And that's why I've hoisted these 12 feet in the air. And I have a fabric reflector down low. I think about it as like 30 inches, three feet off the ground uh, so that the light will bounce uh, um, off the reflector back to the backside. Um, what this does is generate much more energy per area um, as well as really assist the farmer during uh, winter when they can be stockpiling energy to use year round, right? So if it snows and snow covers uh, this trestle bridge, right? The sun farmer module, the backside production actually creates waste heat, which will 
melt the snow, right? Um, so uh, that will clear by itself. So it is meant very much to be a set it and forget it operation for the farmer so that they do not have to, con uh, they, they have enough to contend with, right? So this is meant to be uh, just a uh, hands-off um, energy generation um, uh, device for the farmer. That is exciting and we're going to fit right into our tech tuesday conversation but what's the future look like what's the next steps for you guys yeah so uh i have a pending a uh, grant pending with the department of energy right my i sort of sit in a seam between the usda which is about uh you know vitalizing revitalizing rural economies and the doe right department of energy which is after promoting renewable energy but if you look at what the DOE uh, is doing, which I have no complaints about, right? But it is a, a largely enabling large-scale solar developers uh, to build larger and larger solar farms in rural America, right? So, for instance, the city of Chicago signed a deal last fall um, to use six square miles of central Illinois uh, to provide a solar farm that will provide the uh, city-owned buildings with energy year-round, right? So that's the way, you know, the DOE is pushing, and I understand that, um, but I want an alternative for farmers to self-consume the energy, right? and to have it be a smaller scale. So uh, the scale that, that we're talking about is if you're a farmer in say the Corn Belt uh, uh, and uh, you have a thousand acre farm that you farm conventionally, uh, say corn and soybeans, right? Um, three and a half acres of these Sun Farmer modules, right? Uh, 60 of them. Uh, will provide all the energy you require to ultimately provide all the fuel and fertilizer to operate that farm. So the idea is that um, there would be no fences around this, um, that the, all of the cabling would be uh, 12 feet in the air at the ridges of these, you know, sun farmer modules. And you would have a different appearance. It becomes a different a piece of ag equipment, if you will, right? That's just supporting the farmer's profitability. And ultimately, you know, it's our goal to be uh, powering containerized ammonia plants, uh, and uh, which again produce hydrogen and ammonia, and then allowing the farmer eventually. To transition their fleet and their grain dryers to run on that hydrogen or ammonia, likely ammonia, uh, to actually become energy independent. And then eventually uh, to be able to grow commodity crops with uh, no carbon footprint, right? And that's when the profitability really starts to peak. Um, when you can sell your commodity at a much higher price, a true value add um, by producing something that all the big Cargills, ADMs, and Bungies have committed to reducing their carbon footprints uh, from their scope three greenhouse gas emissions. I know this is a little techie, but uh, they've all pr made promises to do this by 2030 and they have no supply. So the idea is if we start putting equipment in the hands of farmers that is hugely subsidized by the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, both the 
uh, sun farming modules, right, uh, as well as the ammonia plant, uh, farmers can position themselves to become uh, much more profitable, have much more agency than they currently do today. Well, fantastic. This has been really interesting, Larry, to learn more about what you're doing and the path you got here. So we certainly appreciate you hopping on and taking time to share with our listeners a little bit more about Tracker Sled with us today. Oh, you're quite welcome. I'm uh, happy to answer questions anytime. Delaney, having perspective and gaining perspective through this podcast is one of my favorite parts. So this was a neat one for us to participate in. It was. I really enjoyed that conversation there with Larry. He has an interesting background, and I think hopefully our listeners found that interesting as well, Tanner. Yes, absolutely. And listeners, if you've got guests like this that we should interview on the podcast, please uh, don't hesitate to share, to share those with us as well as follow us on social media find Ag News Daily everywhere. Delaney, but Delaney, for today, what do you say? Should we let the listeners go? Let's let them go. 